The scripture today is Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Worked on it. <laughs> the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall also say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Congratulations for being here on a holiday weekend. Extra Torah points, right, Steve? We all get extra Torah points this weekend? Well done, well done. I'm excited to be up here with you today um, for several reasons. Chief amongst them is that I've been pondering and turning over in my head and writing and editing and rewriting and re-editing this sermon since February. <laughs> Not that it takes seven months to prepare a sermon, right? right? It's like three and a half or four months. It, it's not that long. Anywho, um, no, not, not that it takes that long to prepare a sermon. It's that when you get gifted an idea back in February, and you get all excited and think, oh, this is cool, I can do this, I can talk about this, I can share this with people, and then you go scrolling through the common lectionary and find the passages in September. Patience is not my default setting. I have a feeling God's testing me on this one, but I'm excited to be here today and get after it. So let's, let's start talking, and let's start with a prayer, if you'd all join me. Lord, I want to thank you for all of your many blessings. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, I ask that you come be with me. Use me, use my thoughts, use my words to help most clearly communicate your message. God, come please be with us in this place. Surround us, comfort us, 
Lift us up and help us to know you better. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, 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 amen. So February, why February? February was the first time I had a chance to be part of one of the scripture circles with Rabbi Allen. How many of you have gotten a chance to do that, by the way? Quick show of hands. Plenty of you. Awesome, right? Right? For those of you that haven't, I cannot recommend them highly enough. They're intense, but it's an awesome, awesome time, a cool way to dive into scripture and to share with other people and, and learn from other people. So if you haven't had a chance, uh, find Steph Spencer when she gets back and, and sign up for one of those. Uh, so I was at a scripture circle, and we were talking about a passage from Isaiah. I think it was in that week's lectionary. We were discussing how we, we know that it's God communicating to us or speaking into our lives and how that can be a struggle sometimes. And Charlie was one of the guys that was there, and Charlie says, Charlie said something that had he actually reached into my brain and yanked the words out, he couldn't have hit any more verbatim on a thought and a feeling and a question that I've had a hundred times, a thousand times, more times than I care to count. What he said was, you know, sometimes I really struggle, I'll feel something, and I think maybe it's God, but I'm not entirely sure that it's God speaking into my life. I mean, if I had a burning bush, then I'd know, but dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, yes! That's it. Oh, I've had that thought a thousand times. Thank you for putting words to it. Inside, I did that. Outwardly, I'm like, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of how I roll. Um, but I have. I've had that thought so many times. I actually, I work in downtown Minneapolis, and I take the bus back and forth to work more often than not. When I'm walking back to my bus stop from work, as I come down the street towards Hennepin, there's a building right across from where my bus stop is. It's got a couple of those electronic billboards on it. Well, they have, it's the same ad, but it's two different versions of it kind of synced together. And I think all the time as I'm walking down the street and I'm looking up at those things, you know, we've got Russians that can hack elections. We've got Chinese hacking. I don't even know what. God could hack those things, right? He could hack. He could put a burning bush on one and on the other one says, okay, Dan, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. He could do that. <laughs> he hasn't yet. I'll let you know if he does, but so far, not so much. But I think about that all the time. Can I just one time have that burning bush. One time, God, can you make it so perfectly clear that I know it's you and I can just do what you want? So Charlie says that, and what you have to understand about the scripture circles is that Rabbi Allen is as much a facilitator as he is a teacher in those things, right? Questions and answers are flying from every angle in the group, and usually what he's saying is, yes, say more, go deeper, give me more. But in this case, Charlie says, well, if I had a burning bush, then I'd know. And Rabbi Allen says, stop. In the scripture circles I've done, I've never seen him do this before, but he says, everybody just stop and go to Exodus chapter 3. And we land on the passage, this scripture piece here today. Have you ever had somebody explain something that you thought you understood, but they explain it in a new way, and the minute the explanation leaves their lips, you're like, oh, how did I not see that before? And instantly half a dozen stories from your life make sense in a way they've never made sense before? That happened to me. Knocked me flat out. Got me excited enough. That's why I'm up here today. So what did Rabbi say? How did he talk about this story in such a way that it completely knocked me out? We're going to get to that in a minute. I work in radio. We do teases. It's a thing. So, but before we get to the thing, I think it's useful to remember where we're at in the story of Moses, okay? Moses is about to see this burning bush. He's about to hear the voice of God. He's about to have his life radically changed forever. Forty years prior to this moment, Moses also had his life radically changed forever when he saw an Egyptian overseer abusing a Hebrew slave and hit him and killed him. 
Killing that overseer made Moses' life in Egypt forfeit. He had to flee. So he leaves Egypt. He ends up in Midian. He ends up at a well in Midian. And there are Zipporah and her sisters at this well. And there's some other guys that are harassing Zipporah and her sisters. And Moses tells them to take a hike. And they do. Zipporah and her sisters are grateful. They take her back to their father's tent. He meets their father Jethro. He falls in love with Zipporah. They get married and have children. Now Jethro is his father-in-law. And Jethro puts Moses in charge of his flocks. So for 40 years, Moses is shepherding Jethro's flocks. It is not an accident that God chose a guy fresh off of 40 years of shepherding to lead his people out of Egypt. That's another sermon. But that's where we are as he's about to see this burning bush. It's worth it remembering. I think this is one of those stories that <clears throat> Steve talks about this all the time, that we're so familiar with it that we miss some of the nuance and some of the subtlety, and we actually aren't as familiar with it as we thought we, we were. And there's depth, and there's strata, and there's nuance to Scripture. Meaning is determinative, but it's not singular necessarily. What does that mean? Steve talks about it in his new book. Rob Bell talked about it in his most recent book. They talk about Scripture being a gem. And if you turn that gem ever so slightly, the light hits it a little differently, reflects a little differently, reflects, refracts a little differently. And you end up with a completely new vision of the beauty of that gem, of that piece of Scripture. Same gem, same Scripture, just a new perspective on it. So how do we turn the gem on this particular story? We're going to try that with an all play. For those of you who are new to Genesis, we do all plays here. I'll ask a question. Anybody can shout out an answer. We encourage you to shout out whatever answer comes to mind. The chorus, we feel, is better than the solo. So it's a pretty straightforward question. In this story, what is the burning bush? Anybody go ahead. What is the burning bush? God. Yep. What else? Turning point for Moses. You might call it a new beginning. Hello. <clears throat> Anybody else? Who said that? Say that again. It's an obvious symbol. Joe, you were there. What did Rabbi call the burning bush? Ordinary. Hmm. What if the burning bush is an ordinary bush? Well, that can't be possible, right? The thing's on fire. It's not being consumed. Big booming voice coming out of it. There's nothing ordinary about that, right? No bush could do that. Could it? Rabbi told us about a bush. Its Latin name is Dictumnus albus. It's also better known as gas plant or, wait for it, burning bush. What happens is when it gets real hot, it grows in areas of Europe and Asia and in the Middle East and Israel. When it gets hot, this bush excretes an oil to coat itself and protect itself from the heat. When it gets really hot, that oil starts to vaporize. You ever seen a shimmer over something that's really, really hot? It's kind of like that. When it gets really, really, really hot, that vapor can combust. And it burns so fast and it burns so hot, the bush itself very rarely ever catches fire. Bush, fire, not consumed. Sound familiar? Now, there's obviously no way for us to know whether what Moses saw in the desert was dictumness albus. We can't know that. We're never going to know that. Although there is an interesting hint in the text, I think. Look at Moses' reaction. You know, there's that bike path in front of the entrance to the parking lot out front, right? That leads back in kind of a wooded area. If we went for a walk after the service, went out into that wooded area, and we came around a corner, and there's a bush on fire, not being consumed, big booming voice coming from it, out of it, I don't know about you all, that would freak me out. 
And I've heard the burning bush story, and I'm still going to be freaked out by that. But that's not really Moses' reaction, right? His reaction is much more akin to somebody who'd been in a desert for 40 years, had seen once in a great while a bush go whoosh, and thought, you know, I got some time. I'm going to go check that out, try to see why that does that. What if the burning bush was an ordinary bush? Does that diminish the story? Does that diminish God's presence in it? You might argue that, but I don't think so. I think we want to argue that because we put a sort of a negative connotation on the word ordinary. It's common, it's regular, it's uninteresting. But you have to ask yourself, is that how God sees it? Or does the God that created the universe and every speck of life within it use the most ordinary portions of his creation to speak into our lives. Come on now. That was Rabbi's point. The God that created the universe and every speck of life within it uses some of the most ordinary portions of that creation to speak into our lives. And there's evidence of this in Scripture. If you go to 1 Kings, remember the story of Elijah being sent to the mountain to hear from the voice of God? Sent to the mountain, Mount Sinai, Moses, Ten Commandments, everything connects. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you read verses 11 through 13, they say, Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks into pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? It wasn't the howling wind. It wasn't the big earthquake. It wasn't the roaring fire. God spoke to Elijah in the most ordinary thing that there is, silence. God speaks to us in the ordinary. I did my first three years of college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, on Wisconsin. Thank you, thank you. I actually expected to get booed for that, by the way. My brother's here, I assumed he was gonna boo me. Which I would understand, because if my football team had gotten beaten 13 years in a row, I'd be kind of ornery too. That'd be fine. That'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. So, <clears throat> I, did, I know, right? So I did my first three years at Madison. I was actually studying in their meteorology program. Not because I wanted to be on TV in front of a green screen, waving my hand around, being right maybe 65% of the time. That wasn't my goal. I was fascinated by the science of it. I wanted to get into a science field. I was actually in conversation with folks at NASA about an internship when I finally decided I had to get out of the program. So why did I have to get out of the program? Growing up, I always thought I was really good at math and science. What I didn't realize is I was good to a level at math and science, but the level of physics and calculus you need to do a meteorology degree was slightly beyond my reach. If you give me a set of data and an equation to run it through, I will get you a result all the live long day. If you give me a set of data that doesn't fit an equation and tell me I've got to go out and find two other equations and manipulate those equations into the original equation such that the data now fits this new equation and then you get a result, ah, my brain breaks. <laughs> I can't do that. It took me three years of banging my head against the wall, but I learned I can't do that. So hello, major change, right? And I mean that on two different levels. I had to change my college major. I changed to a communication degree, which was fun because now I went from a science degree to an arts degree, so everything that was an elective is now a requirement. Everything that was a requirement is now an elective, and that's totally out of balance, so I'm going to be in school longer than I thought. <clears throat> and Madison didn't have a radio program, so now I have to transfer school, so everything in my life underwent a major change. You know, I had to go to a new school in a new town in a new house with new roommates and get a new job to help support myself, and I don't do new and change very well. 
So I was upset a lot when I first transferred. And I wasn't mad at anybody in particular, I was just mad all the time. There's all this upheaval and chaos in my life and I just don't handle that well. So there was one particular night where I was really upset and I decided I had to get out of my house. I wasn't mad at anybody, I just had to get out. So I walk out the front door and I slam it behind me and I stop and I look up. And it was one of those nights where the sky is super, super clear and the stars are really bright. And as I looked up right in front of me is the constellation Orion. Now I have no idea why that stopped me dead in my tracks, but it did. And I stood there and I stared at it for, you know, probably two minutes, but it felt like an hour and a half, right? It's one of those things. And for some reason, that got to me. And the next night when I went out, it had shifted a little bit in the sky, but there was Orion again. And the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And suddenly, in this period of my life where I thought, here I am 20 years old having a midlife crisis, here was something that was consistent and constant and I could find on a regular basis. And for whatever reason, that provided enough of a foundation for me to calm down and realize everything was going to be okay. Now, you might think stars aren't ordinary. Why are you talking about stars when it comes to a, a sermon about you know, God and the ordinary, right? And they're not, right? Stars are giant balls of hydrogen and helium gas locked in this consistent nuclear explosion until the thing gets so big that its own gravity overwhelms it, it goes supernova and collapses down into a black hole. It's nothing. Thank you. There's nothing ordinary about that, right? Or is there? Scientists forever have been trying to calculate how many stars there are in the universe, right? And the best estimates that they have, you know, estimate how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy and then how many galaxies they expect there to be in the universe. Larger galaxies, you increase the number. Smaller galaxies, you decrease the number. Extrapolate, extrapolate, extrapolate. And you come up with a range of figures, but a good solid midpoint is about 200 sextillion stars in the universe. Now, what's a sextillion? Let's say you had a billion dollars, because that would be awesome, right? Yeah. Let's say you were in a gigantic stadium with a billion other people, each of whom also had a billion dollars. That entire sum of money is a sextillion. It's a billion billions. That's still a difficult number to get your head around, right? So let's do some comparison. If you took every grain of sand on every beach on the face of the earth and added them up, you would arrive at a number around five sextillion grains of sand. 200 sextillion stars in the universe, five sextillion grains of sand on the earth. There are 40 times as many stars in the universe as there are grains of sand on the planet earth. And we all know how ordinary we consider a grain of sand to be. Stars are 40 times as ordinary as sand. God speaks to us in the ordinary. There's other examples in Scripture. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus is teaching about how much God cares about us and the level of detail he knows us to. And he says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Now, some of us make that counting a little bit easier on God than some of the rest of y'all. I'm not saying bald's holy. Draw your own conclusions. Or just let me have this one. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. That's the level of detail God knows us to. And if something as ordinary as a strand of hair is important enough to God to assign it a number, why would we think God isn't willing to use the most ordinary of things to speak into our lives? <clears throat> my mom and dad live down in Phoenix. And actually, my mom's version of doing church lately is to listen to last week's Genesis podcast on a given Sunday. That's kind of her church. So a week from today, she'll be listening to this. Hi, Mom. I love you. Um, 
And she gave me permission to use this story. So several, several years ago, my mom had a breast cancer scare. And unfortunately, that's all too common and ordinary a thing in our world these days. But its commonness doesn't make it any less terrifying. And so she was at a clinic one day. They were going to do some sort of scan. And she's standing in this room. And there's two technicians working on a computer getting ready to do whatever they were going to do, one of whom she had seen before, the other one she hadn't seen in any of her previous visits. And she's standing there, and it's cold in the room, and she's wearing one of those ridiculous gowns that you're constantly grabbing at the back of the thing because you're convinced your backside's hanging out. She's physically uncomfortable. And oh, by the way, the word cancer is gonging in her head. I have cancer. I might die. Understandably, her anxiety rate was going up and up and up and up. And just as her pot was about to boil over, the technician she hadn't seen there before walks up to her and says, Mrs. Cook, is it okay if I just stand with you here for a little while? while my partner gets the stuff ready. I was like, oh, okay. And they talked about their families, and they talked about where they live, and they talked about where they're from. They talked about everything that wasn't cancer. And that little bit of a distraction was enough to help my mom calm down and realize, just get through this day, and we'll get to tomorrow when we get there. Now, my mom never saw that particular technician at any future visit to that clinic, and so she's absolutely convinced that in that moment of need, God sent her an angel. And I'm a good son, so I don't argue with my mother. <laughs> but, look, doctors and nurses and technicians and people that work in the healthcare field, it's an amazingly noble profession. And thanks to their, minis their ministering and their help, my mom's been cancer-free for, for years now. I know, right? But they're also people. They have faults, they have foibles, they have shortcomings. They're ordinary people. So what if, in that moment of need, God used the ordinary to speak words of calm and comfort into my mom's life when she so desperately needed it? God speaks to us in the ordinary. Tim Keller uh, is a pastor many of you are familiar with out in New York, and he sent out a tweet back in April. Again, I've been working on this since February. <laughs> he sent out a tweet back in April, and I just happened to notice it scroll by in my feed, and I thought, oh, i got to save that because that speaks to this so well. The tweet said, if Jesus became incarnate to live among the ordinary, then what we call ordinary is really special to God. I want to repeat that. If Jesus became incarnate to live among the ordinary, then what we call ordinary is really special to God. God speaks to us in the ordinary. Last year, I found myself wrestling with a decision, a discernment process, if you will. And I was really unsure about it because I was feeling a nudge in a direction. God and I sort of have an understanding. He doesn't push me into stuff. Because I'm stubborn enough, if I get pushed, I'll dig in and resist just because that's why. So he nudges me. Consistently, mind you, but gently. The trouble with being nudged is that it's sometimes difficult to know where the nudging is coming from and what direction they're trying to nudge you in. But I had a pretty clear idea of where this nudge was going, and I was pretty scared because it was going to mean a big change in my life, it was going to mean a lot of money I'd have to spend, and it was going to be a lot of time, and I was going to end up in a different path than the one I had been on for a long time. And I didn't know if I wanted to do that. So when I get in a place like that where I'm really unsure, I start talking to people, and I talk to family, and I talk to friends, and I talk to my pastor. I talk to people in this community that I didn't even know all that well, but I respected them and their, their wisdom. Not because I needed somebody to tell me what to do, but I thought if I heard enough different perspectives, I would find somebody to say something that would shake something loose in my head and I'd know what to do. And what I found, what I wasn't aware of at the time, but I found out later on, is they were all kind of telling me the same thing. Dan, you know what you're supposed to do. 
you're just seeking some sort of permission to do it. And instead of turning that over to God, you're trying to figure that out for yourself. But I couldn't hear that. I was so wrapped up into, oh, this is going to be so much money and so much time, and I don't know what the end is going to look like, that I couldn't hear what they were telling me. And it actually took a conversation with my dad around last Christmas. My dad, who I was as sure as anybody would be hesitant about this idea, he supports me, he wouldn't be against it, but he'd have some reservations. And as it turned out, not only did he not have reservations, he was more enthusiastic and supportive of it than anybody I talked to. And that reversal was enough to flip a switch, and suddenly I heard what all these other people were saying, and it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so literally this past Monday, I began my first class in the Master of Divinity program at Bethel Seminary. I know, right? Thank you. I don't tell that story because I wanted that reaction, but thank you very much. That was awesome. Uh, I tell that story because I think it sums this up as best as anything can. Do you want to know how God speaks into your life? Everybody's got their uh, liturgy in front of them, right? Take your liturgy out and turn to the back page. The back page very rarely changes. It's kind of common. It's kind of ordinary. But there's information there that I think it's worth reminding ourselves of, including that first line who we are. What are the first four words under who we are? Ordinary apprentices of Jesus. Hello. Ordinary apprentices of Jesus. You want to know how God speaks into your life? Ordinary apprentices of Jesus. You want to know why it's important to do Christianity and community? I never understood this concept until I got to this community. Do you want to know why it's important? Because the more ordinary apprentices of Jesus you surround yourself with, the easier it becomes to hear God speaking words of love and truth and wisdom and comfort through those folks into your life. And the more you realize you can trust those folks, the more you realize that God uses all the most ordinary elements of creation to speak words of love and truth and wisdom and hope into your life. God speaks to us in the ordinary. Now look, maybe the, the story of the burning bush is every bit the miracle and the Sunday school story that we've grown up with, right? There's nothing wrong with that reading. I'm not invalidating that reading of it at all. But I think it is worth turning that gem just a little bit and taking a different view of it and understanding that the God that created the universe and every speck of life within it can use the most ordinary elements of that creation to speak into our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. So if you'll join me in the prayers of response. I'll give you a minute, y'all turn back. Let Paul the Apostle be our guide. He used to murder his enemies, carrying out his own will against other people, our people, until Jesus called him, showed him that he was loved. Paul saw the light and lived a life worthy of emulation. His call is to let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, help us not lag in zeal. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Like, really? Hope is not naive. Patient is not foolishness. Perseverance is not enslavement. Rejoice. Suffer. Pray. These are the tools of eternity, making you fit to live forever. Also, we practice. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or untouchable, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you actually are. Also, we practice kindness. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the response of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What is God's will, and who can know it but God? We will concern ourselves. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. So we're going to enter into 60 seconds of silence now where we hope that the Holy Spirit will come and speak words of truth into our lives, no matter how ordinary that voice may sound. Lord, please come. <laughs>